We're in the last week of the life of Christ. I'd like to do a quick review of that. What happened on Sunday? We have the triumphal entry. Monday, we have the what? Temple cleansing. Tuesday, the testing of the Lamb. Wednesday's the day of silence. We looked at Thursday, which Jesus ate the Last Supper, and then he was tried. This is our sign for tried. He didn't have much to say. And now we looked at Peter. He what? Uh, denied him. I'm sorry, that's Friday. But let's go with Thursday. He ate the Last Supper. He prayed and was betrayed. Then we go to Friday. Jesus was tried and denied. Today we're going to see he is crucified. And then Saturday he is what? Guarded. And Easter Sunday he is what? Resurrected. Let's go to the crucifixion in your harmonies. Paragraph 177, right at the end of 176, we're going to start there. Somebody asked about Herod and Pilate. Pilate was the governor of Judea, very cruel, and uh, we're going to see in the crucifixion uh, manifestations of that, but Pilate was also uh, the governor until 36 A.D., and then he was banished to Austria, where he later committed suicide. The Roman, governor, uh, Roman emperor Caligula did not like Pilate. Uh, we really didn't get into the uh, event much, but at the end of paragraph 176, it says, from this time on, Pilate tried to release Jesus, but the Jewish leader shouted out, if, this, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Now, what happened at the time is Caesar was in trouble back in Rome. His friend, Sergenus, who was the guy that was the motivator to get Pilate to be the governor of Judea, was deposed by Caesar, and therefore his buddy Pilate was in trouble. So the Jews know this, and they say, if you let Jesus go, uh, you're no friend of Caesar. And therefore, verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside and sat down on the judgment seat in the place called the pavement, Gabbatha in Aramaic. Now, <clears throat> the, the John account continues of 1914. It was the day of preparation for the Passover, so we know it's Friday. Pilate said to the Jewish leaders, look, here is your king, and they shouted, Verse 15, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And in the sixth and last attempt to release Jesus, Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? The high priest replied, we have no king except Caesar. Then Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So that's going to be the beginning of many events in the crucifixion story. Now the first thing that Pilate did uh, was he tried to appease the Jews. In the Matthew account, it says he released Barabbas, Matthew 27, 26. But after this, he had Jesus flogged and then handed him over to be crucified. Under Roman law, you were not allowed to do that. Under Roman law, flogging was such an awful torture that once a man had received a flogging, he was not allowed to be crucified. If, the, if you remember the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ, I thought they did a very good job of portraying flogging. They had a tool that they used called a flagrum. And they would take this, uh, basically a shortened broom handle, and in the end of the broom handle were long strips of leather, and along the way in the leather were pieces of bone and glass. And they would chain the victim down over a stump so he couldn't move, and then they would take the flagrum and throw it across his back and literally fillet his flesh from his body. It's the most awful thing. And yet, Again, in Isaiah 53, it's predicted that the Messiah would come and suffer stripes for us. I think that's the stripes of the flagrum. Now, Pilate again tries to release Jesus, tries to convince the Jewish leaders not to go through with this, 
but he cannot because they've got the political clout to say you have no, uh, we have uh, anybody who releases Jesus is no friend of Caesar. So Pilate hands him over. He has him flogged first. He still tries to release him. That doesn't work. And so he sends him away to be crucified. So we're in the Matthew account, paragraph 177. It says, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence. They gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe around him. And after braiding a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, and kneeling down before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the staff and struck him repeatedly on the head. So Jesus is going to endure here incredible physical pain. He's flogged. He's, his back is shot. They put a robe on that back, probably similar to a very thick material of burlap that would just be incredibly painful. They weave a crown of thorns. All the thorns in the Holy Land are very much more extreme than you would see uh, here in central Florida. And again, the pain just of wearing that would be incredible. Uh, it's also interesting and ironic to me that thorns are a result of what? Sin. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam sinned, for the first time thorns entered the planet. And yet Jesus bears the crown of thorns as he is crucified. They beat him with the staff, and this is under the full jurisdiction of Pilate. Herod, by the way, uh, ended up in 39 A.D., just so you know what happened to old Herod. His wife Herodias, remember her? She was the, the lady that wanted John the Baptist killed. She convinced him to go to Rome and asked and tried to convince the Roman Senate that he would be the king of Israel, of the whole country, instead of just Galilee. Well, they didn't go so well. That didn't go so well before the Senate. So they deposed him to France, and he died in abject poverty there, I'm sure, without his beautiful bride at his side. Now, Jesus is going to be put on a cross, and there are four kinds of shapes of crosses mentioned in Roman archaeology. Uh, the single pole is probably not... Uh, what Jesus was crucified on. The T-shaped cross, uh, probably not again, although there's, I can't be definitive. Uh, the traditional cross has the, the headpiece above it, and we're going to see that the indictment that, that was nailed about Jesus was nailed above his head, so there would need to be a piece of the cross there. And then the X cross is traditionally the cross that Peter was crucified on later uh, in Rome. So those are some shapes of some crosses that are a little different uh, maybe than the ones you are, you are used to seeing. Uh, Jesus is going to be crucified at a place called Golgotha. When you go to Israel, they'll take you to this place called the Place of the Skull. And that's a cave built into the side of a hill. And actually, I found it's very likely that those holes were put there on purpose. So I don't think this is the site of the crucifixion, but that's what they want you to believe when you go over there. And plus, it sells postcards. Um, also want you to be aware that uh, crucifixion is an incredibly awful way to die. Uh, and the Romans were expert at this. On the left is an actual bone with a spike in it. Jesus' cross probably had a little stepping stone on it, and they would take the nails and drive them right through the feet uh, in the back of the ankle. And crucifixion is not death by pain, nor is it death by bleeding to death. It's death by asphyxiation. The nails were hung in, probably in your wrists or in the palm of your hand, and you would hang there. And the crucifixion of, of a man normally took anywhere from 24 to 72 hours. It was not unusual for crucifixion to last at least two days. Uh, and you would hang, and, and as you did, your diaphragm would collapse, and your tongue would swell up and cleave to the roof of your mouth. And in order to breathe, you would have to pull yourself up. 
and now you're faced with the torturous decision of am I going to breathe or relieve the pain, or breathe or relieve the pain. And you begin to understand what Jesus was willing to go through for us. Psalm 22, if you haven't read that, it's a a description written by King David in 900 B.C. of a man being crucified, and it's what Jesus went through for us. And he actually quotes from Psalm 22 there on the cross. So the crucifixion event is just incredibly brutal. It's, 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 it's inhumane. It's bestial. It's just phenomenally painful. Uh, and that's exactly what Jesus is willing to go through. I've given you a list of uh, the, the stages to Calvary. And it always makes me laugh because when you go to seminary, you take courses in how to preach. It's called homiletics. And they tell you in a good sermon there should be no more than three points. So I've got 26 that we're going to cover here in the next 30 minutes, okay? The first thing that we see is Matthew 27 and verse 31. It says, When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes back on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Stage number one is that Jesus is going to bear his own cross. John 19 and verse 6 says, When the chief priests and their officers saw him, they shouted out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said, are we good? On the, okay. Pilate said, you take him and crucify him. Certainly I know I find no reason for an accusation. Uh, and so all this awful stuff uh, begins. Verse 26 of the Luke account, stage 2, as they led Jesus away, they seized Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. They placed the cross on his back and made him carry it behind Jesus. Now, uh, we don't know a lot about Simon, but we know in the... Uh, in the Mark account, he's got a couple of sons. In the Mark account, chapter 15 and verse 1, it says the soldiers forced a passerby to carry his cross, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country. He was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, Simon is a Jew, and he's a converted Jew, probably, and uh, you know he's got a Jewish name. He's there for the Passover. And uh, when you read the book of Romans, chapter 16 and verse 13, it talks about these people, Alexander and Rufus, have come to faith, and my guess is this probably has something to do with it. Jesus is so weakened that he cannot carry his own cross. I think his cross had two parts to it. In the traditional one, the vertical post uh, would, have, would have been there at the place of crucifixion. He would have had to carry the horizontal piece. But it is so heavy, and he's been up all night. He's had the six trials. He's been beaten now. He's been flogged now. He's been beaten with his, with his, uh, with his rod, with his... Uh, what do you call that, the, the, the staff, okay? He's wearing the crown of thorns, and he doesn't have the physical strength. Now, under Roman law, you could enforce on any subjugated individual to carry a load up to a mile. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if they want you to carry their pack one mile, carry it two. That's what Simon's doing here. I don't think he stepped up and, out of great faith and devotion said, I want to do this. He was imposed upon uh, to do the crucifixion. And in fact, uh, they do that as step two. Step three, stage three, is as he heads out, there's a lament over uh, Jerusalem. As you study the, the Matthew account, it says, as they were going, I'm sorry, where am I here? Let's see. Look at the Luke account, okay? Luke chapter 23 and verse 27. A great number of the people followed Jesus. Among him were women who were mourning and wailing for him. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, 
Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Remember what the Jews had said just prior to all this happening? His blood be on us and on our children. So weep because in 70 AD your children are going to suffer the consequences of this evil generation. So that's his lament over Jerusalem. For this is certain, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, the wombs that never bore breasts, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say, The mountains fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if such things are done when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? In other words, if I suffer this much, uh, and I'm innocent, how much more is Israel going to suffer because they're guilty? So stage number four, the lament over Jerusalem. Stage, I'm sorry, number three. Stage number four is the arrival at Golgotha, the arrival at Golgotha. In the Mark account, chapter 15 and verse 22, they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. And then stage number five, they offered him wine mixed with gall. Verse 23 of the Matthew account says they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Golgotha is the place of the skull, and I don't think it has to look like a skull. I think it's simply the place where skulls are gathered because executions happen. Apparently there's a city out in Kansas called Dodge City. Anybody been there? And there's a, there's a cemetery there called what? Boot Hill. And I've never been to Boot Hill, but I'm told it doesn't look like a boot. But it's called Boot Hill because all the people that died there were buried there with their boots sticking up, okay? So I'm thinking that's the same thing that's going on here. Probably the only act of mercy in the entire process of crucifixion was you would get a sponge that was uh, juicy with wine mixed with gall or myrrh. And that was a painkiller. As awful as this excruciating, tormenting death is going to be, they do give you a little bit of a painkiller. And Jesus does what? He refuses it. And again, he refuses it because he's willing to go through the very worst for you and for me. So now we get to event number uh, six, the crucifixion itself, Luke 23, 33. It says, they came to the place of the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So he's one of three people being executed. There's some evidence, or at least tradition, that these are uh, traitors who were followers of Barabbas. He was the leader, and they were all captured together. But we know that Crucifixion doesn't take place all by himself. Uh, the nails are put through the wrists. If you want some time, Google the AMA. They have a wonderful uh, article about crucifixion and how it had to have taken place. There are some medical facts that go on where the nails have to be placed and all that the victim had to go through. And so that's what's going on here. He's crucified. And when he is nailed into the horizontal post, and then he's laid on the vertical post. Then they would lift the vertical post and just, if you can imagine, a big hole in the ground, a couple, three, four feet deep even, and as that vertical post slams into the bottom of the hole. The incredible pain of that. Jesus now speaks, and he's going to speak seven times. His first word from the cross is Luke 23 and... 34. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Okay? They do not know what they were doing. Now, he doesn't, I don't think he's saying forgive everybody in the world. I don't think he's saying here forgive the Sanhedrin. 
forgive Annas and Caiaphas. I don't think he's saying forgive Pilate and Herod. I think he's saying here simply forgive these soldiers who were doing their duty and doing it well. And as a result, the crucifixion takes place. And I think they are forgiven from the consequences of the event. They're not forgiven for eternity, but they don't know exactly what they're doing. Now, this is going on at about 9 o'clock in the morning during the first three hours, paragraph 179. And from 9 until noon, Jesus is going to be on the cross, only six hours total. And as, as I said, sometimes crucifixion often would take two to three days. But Jesus is only going to be gone, in, uh, he's going to be dead in six hours. And during these first six hours, he's going to experience the wrath of men. The soldiers uh, divide his garments. Chapter 19 and verse 23 of the Gospel of John says this, the soldiers took his clothes and made four shares, one for each t uh, soldier, and the tunic remained. Now the tunic was seamless, woven from the top to the bottom as a single piece. The different Gospels record this in different ways. In the Luke account, it says they, they threw dice to divide his clothes. The average Jewish person had five pieces of clothes. He had an outer garment, an inner garment called the tunic. Often Jewish men wore a headpiece and they wore sandals. And Jesus was blessed to have a robe, which was a special robe, perhaps given to him by the women mentioned in, in Luke 8, the wealthy women who supported the ministry. And so here, event number eight, the garments are divided, but rather than tear up the robe, one guy gets the spoils. And if you were a Roman soldier and you were on crucifixion duty, that was part of your pay. You could take that stuff and sell it, barter with it, and use it because the Romans did not pay their soldiers particularly uh, well. At this point, the superscription is added, and I love this. Chapter 19 of John and verse 19, Pilate also had a notice written and fastened to the cross, which read, read this with me, Jesus the Nazarene, read this with me, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Now again, under Roman law, crucifixion took place on one of the main roads, and, and, and the place of crucifixion in the traditional Roman Catholic site would have been just outside one of the gates, which would have been open at 9 o'clock as the Passover celebration began. The actual ceremony happened at night, but you could walk along the roadside and see these people being crucified at Golgotha. And if you had your kids along, Rome wanted your kids to know why these people were being killed. And you could look above the heads of the criminals, and there were the signed indictments. This was the indictment that was supposed to be signed by Judas, and probably was at some point. He agreed to something. But we do know that the indictment over Jesus simply says, this is Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Now you can guess that the Jewish leaders are not happy with this, especially because verse 20, thus many of the Jewish residents of Jerusalem read this notice because this was the place, the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the notice was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. So whether you were a Jew, that was Aramaic, or Latin, you could read it if you were Roman, or Greek was everybody else. Everybody knew why Jesus was being killed. It was because he was the king of the Jews. I just picture this. Then the chief priests of the Jews go back to the, to the Pilate's palace and say, hey, don't write to the king of the Jews, but rather this man said I am the king of the Jews. And now Pilate has had enough. Verse 22, Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So it's going to stay there. So Jesus, after six bogus trials, is killed for being the king of the Jews, and that is in fact why he is put to death. 
Now the thieves are crucified, Matthew chapter 27 and verse 38. The two outlaws were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And then if you look on the list, event number 11, 12, 13, and 14 is a series of mockeries. Matthew 27, verse 39, you have mockery by the crowd. Those who passed by defamed him, shaking their heads and saying, you who can destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are God's son, come down from the cross. And then you have the Jewish leaders. And my guess is this goes on for the entire first three hours on the cross. The, the soldiers in Luke 23 and verse 36 pipe up. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourselves. And then you have the thieves, or actually the rulers, Matthew 27, verse 41, says, In the same way, even the chief priests, together with the experts in the law, the Sanhedrin is out there watching, they're orchestrating this whole thing, and they're mocking, He cannot save himself. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel if he comes down now from the cross, we will believe in him. And then they quote scripture. I love these guys. He trusts in God. Let God, if he wants to, deliver him now because he said, I am God's son. And then one of the robbers, the thieves, also mocks Jesus. Matthew 27, verse 44. One of the robbers, the robbers who were crucified, also spoke abusively to him. Now the central theme of the mockery, in addition to the humiliation is do what? If you are the Son of God, do what? Come down off the cross. Think about that. Who in all of the universe would love to see Jesus come down from the cross? Satan. Who from the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the wilderness, when he was tempted by Satan, tried to keep Jesus from going to the cross? Satan. And I think this is Satan's last-ditch effort to keep Jesus from dying on the cross because if Jesus dies on the cross, Jesus wins, we win, and Satan loses. Now, just between you and me, if I'd have been Jesus, and it's, as you can tell I'm not, I'd have jumped down for about 10 seconds and just kind of gone, give him a little 90-90 boo-boo action and then jump back up and died. Just between me and you. It's a good thing I'm not Jesus, and if you ever have a question about that, Gwen is here to answer all those requests. Then we have a wonderful event, Luke 23, 39, event number 15. This stage, the, one of the thieves comes to faith. Luke 23, 39, it says, One of the criminals who was hanging there railed at him and saying, Aren't you the Christ, save yourself? But the other rebuked him, saying, Don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we rightly so, for we are getting what we deserve for what we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus Remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, and this is his second word from the cross, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. I love that. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, I don't know how this man knew what he knew. He was apparently an insurrectionist. He was certainly a thief. He's called a thief in three of the Gospels. But he knew some things. He knew he was sinful. And he knew Jesus was not sinful. He knew that Jesus could save him. Maybe he'd heard Jesus speak. We don't know. But he also knew that Jesus was coming again. And so Jesus, remember me when you come again. And Jesus says lovingly, today 
you'll be with me in paradise. You don't have to wait until the kingdom. You don't have to go to purgatory. You don't have to deal with anything else today. After you die and I die, you'll be with me in, in paradise. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I, you know, people get upset. Oh, how, how do you have a God who lets people have a deathbed conversion? I want a God who lets people have a deathbed conversion. There are people that don't know Jesus yet that on their deathbed, if they want Jesus, I want God to reach down to them the way Jesus reaches out to this criminal. And that begins another word from the cross, John 19 and verse 26. John 19 and verse 26. This is stage number 17. Now, standing beside Jesus' cross were his mother, his mother's sister, and I believe that's Salome from the Bible. That's the, mayor, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the mother of James and John. Also, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Those women will be involved in the resurrection. But here, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing there, now the disciple whom he loved is always John, and he's on the cross, and he looks down, and he sees his mother Mary and his cousin, his disciple John. And he said to his disciple, look, here is your mother. And first he said to his mother, so when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, look, here is your son. So that's his third word from the cross. Here is Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of the world, obeying the law. What's the commandment say? Honor your father and your mother. To word, the word honor is the word be responsibly, responsible financially for. And there on the cross, as the oldest son in the family, he's taking financial care of his mama. And there's great tradition here that she went to live with John from that time on. The Bible says it. And when you visit Ephesus, which we're going to go do here in about a couple of months, uh, there's actually a chapel where uh, John is buried and near is a place where Mary is allegedly buried as well. She apparently stays with John. He's the one that lives late into his 90s and writes the Gospel of John. So he would record this little incident. That's where he and Mary come together, and she becomes his son, and he becomes her mother. Now, paragraph 180. The second three hours on the cross are different than the first. First of all, they're different because it gets dark. Okay? Luke 23, verse 44, It was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And again, that's the brightest time of the day. If you've ever been to Israel, the sun shines high from noon until 3, and it's dark. It's because I think during these three hours on the cross, Jesus has now suffered from the wrath of people, but during noon to 3, he's suffering from the wrath of God. And for the first and only time in the universe and its history, the Father and the Son are disconnected. God the Father is looking at his Son, and his Son is bearing the sins of the world, and therefore he cannot look at him. And because the Father and Son are separated, the universe gets dark. It's a dark place because the Father and the Son are not united for the first and only time. And then Jesus cries out after those three hours, which in our lives we're born separated from God. But Jesus was willing to do this for us. He'd settled that score in the Garden of Gethsemane. And his fourth word from the cross, Matthew 27 46, about 3 o'clock, Jesus shouted with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse 1. Quoting scripture right up until the end, Jesus is in complete 
control of the events of the crucifixion. Interesting, we mentioned it last week, but this is the only time I know of where Jesus refers to God as God, not Father. He talks about his Father 170 times. He calls him my Father 21 times, but here, when they cannot fellowship with each other because Jesus is the sin offering of the world, he says, my God. And fortunately, God answers. But before the answer happens, there's a reaction of the witness. Stage 20 is in the Matthew account, verse 47. When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. Now, he wasn't, but that's what they thought he was calling for because Elijah is the one that precedes in Jewish theology the coming of the Messiah. Jesus speaks from the cross a fifth time, John chapter 19 and verse 28. After realizing that by this time everything was completed, he said in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was there, so they put a sponge soaked in sour wine on a branch of hyssop and lifted it to his mouth. At that point, he drinks. So the fifth word from the cross is what? I'm thirsty. It's the same Greek words that are used in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man goes to Sheol. Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham. And the rich man says, send Lazarus here with a cool drink because I am thirsty. Same word. I don't know much about hell, but I know it's a thirsty place. Jesus has experienced hell, separation from God, for you and me. And he also has something very, very important to say. And so he drinks this wine, which allows him to wet his whistle as opposed to dulling the pain. And then verse 30, his third word, his sixth word from the cross. Stage 23. When he had received the sour wine, Jesus said, it is completed. We know in the Greek that's one word. It's the word tetelestai. T-E-T-E-L-E-S-T-A-I. And in the Roman records, when an accountant showed someone's debt was paid in full, that's what they wrote on the bill. Your account is paid in full. It's tetelestai. Jesus has gone to the cross for you and for me and for everyone on the planet and he has paid in full the debt that we owe to God. And that's why before he dies, he can take the sip and say, it is finished. He has done everything he can possibly do. And therefore, he's ready to die. After only six hours on the cross, Luke 23 and verse 46, it says now, wait a minute, where did 46 go? Uh, there it is. Then, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So there's a spiritual restoration with the Father. And after saying this, event, uh, event number 25, Jesus dies. Again, the word commit my spirit and breathe his last is the word he actively dismisses his spirit. He says, I'm ready to go now, and he goes now. That's not altogether unheard of. There are people that I know of when they're ready to die, they just go. And Jesus was ready to go, and he went. And then, because he'd been in control of everything, uh, he dies. Now, the next stage is really more than one thing, but it's kind of fun just to look at it. And these are the accompanying signs to the crucifixion. By the way, the darkness is pretty cool. Let me just talk about that, because this is an accompanying sign during the, the crucifixion. 
you would think that if there was an eclipse of the sun from noon until 3, that other writers would mention it. And they do. Dionysius, who was an Egyptian scholar, wrote that it was as dark as far down south as Heliopolis, which is the city of the sun in Egypt, on this day in history. Diogenes, another Egyptian scholar, said that the darkness during this eclipse was such that it was as if the deity suffered or sympathized with someone who did. I thought that's a pretty powerful statement. Diogenes, D-I-O-G-E-N-E-S. And then in the north, the eclipse went as far north as Turkey or Asia Minor, and a a scholar by the name of Phlegon, P-H-L-E-G-O-N, said the eclipse was so dark that stars were visible in the middle of the day. Now, after Jesus dies, some other things happen. Matthew 27 and verse 51, it says, this, Just then, the, cur- the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the temple curtain, folks, was 60 feet by 20 feet by 4 feet thick. The earth shook, so there was an earthquake. The rocks were split apart, and the tombs were opened, verse 52, and the bodies of many saints who had died were raised. They came out of the tombs after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many. That that would freak me out. These are not Old Testament saints. These are people who are died kind of like Lazarus and restored back to life. But the the veil being torn is, is pretty remarkable. If you think about it in the temple, there was an outer part. We looked at this early in the life of Christ and an inner part. The outer part is the holy place. The inner part is the holy of holies. And that's where God lived. And to come into the presence of God was very rare. Under the Jewish system, only one man from one family, from one clan, from one tribe, from one nation, from one race, on one day a year was allowed to go behind that veil. That was the high priest on the Day of Atonement. But you know, to the writer to the book of Hebrews says now... (laughs) we can boldly approach the throne of grace. That we have access to the very presence of God because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. That when you believe in Jesus, okay, God says, okay, this is all your sin. This is all Jesus' righteousness. And when you believe in Jesus, that big switch happens. Okay, you give your sin to Jesus, and he gives you his righteousness. And God says, you are declared righteous because of the crucifixion of my son and the payment in full for your sin. Now, the responses are interesting. In the Luke account, 23, verse 48, all the crowds that had been assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breast. Beating their breast for a Jewish person is is a sign of fear. Don't like this. Don't like the earthquake. Don't like the veil split. Don't like any of this. Don't like the darkness. Don't like it. The Gentiles, on the other hand, are in the Matthew account, chapter 27 and verse 54. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were extremely terrified and said, Truly this one was God's son. So, Jesus dies. He made him who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might be called the righteousness of Christ. Now, he's buried, and the Jewish tombs look like that. That's a picture of a 2,000-year-old Jewish tomb. 
And the picture of the burial is a good one. Paragraph 182, it says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus. So he's on the council, by the way, and we know some things about him. The Mark account, chapter 15 and verse 43, says, He was a highly regarded member of the council. He was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God. He boldly went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then in the Matthew account, it says, Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut in the rock. Then he rolled a great stone across the entrance of the tomb and went away. And then Matthew, um, Matthew 27, 61 says, Now Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting opposite the tomb. So they watched this. His body is taken down, but only after one other thing happens I want to point out. John 19. Because it was the day of preparation, which is Friday, so that the body should not stay on the crosses on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was an especially important one. It was the beginning of the Passover feast. The Jewish leaders asked Pilate to have the victim's legs broken and the bodies taken down. Now, why would they break the legs? So you would die quicker. It was actually an act of mercy. They would just come along with a big old pole and they'd whack your thigh bones. And now you can't push up anymore. And we've got to get them killed before the sun goes down. We can't have them in here once the feast has started, once the Passover is getting, getting going. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men who had been crucified with Jesus, first the one, then the other. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and blood and water flowed out immediately. Psalm 22 talks about this. The writer says, I can count all my bones. If Jesus had any broken bones, he is disqualified as a Passover sacrifice. Zechariah says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced, chapter 12 and verse 10. And then John says in verse 35, the person who saw it has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you also may believe for these things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled, not a bone of his will be broken. And again, another scripture, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And so Joseph of Arimathea takes the body, and in the John account, verse 39, Nicodemus, remember him? The man who'd previously come to Jesus at night, accompanied Joseph carrying a mixture of myrrh and aloes, aloes weighing about 75 pounds. And then they buried him in verse 40, they took Jesus' body and wrapped it with the aromatic spices, strips of linen cloth, according to Jewish customs. Now there was at the place where Jesus was crucified a garden, and the garden was a new tomb where no one had yet been buried. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, they placed Jesus' body there. In closing, I'll ask you this question because it's an important one, and you'll get asked this. If you haven't, you need to be. Who killed Jesus? Did the Jews kill Jesus? They certainly orchestrated the events of the crucifixion, didn't they? Did the Romans kill Jesus? They actually drove the nails in his hands. But the scripture is pretty clear, folks. I killed Jesus. You killed Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I've used that verse several times in this study, but it's a very powerful verse when you understand the crucifixion. And then one of my favorite verses, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. 
And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Father, we're blown away at your love for us. We're blown away at the sacrifice of your Son. We're blown away at the forgiveness that it provides for us and anyone who asks. And we pray you'd make us worthy stewards of that message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.